listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Well, good morning. Grateful that you guys made it out this morning. Um, I would like to say that you braved the weather, but we spent 11 years in Vermont, so this is nothing. Um, I would say, as a friend and a brother in Christ, suck it up. I'm really glad you're here, Uh, but that's just me. Maybe I need to learn compassion. Uh, Maybe the Lord will teach me that this morning. Um, So we're jumping into the book of Romans again. We'll be in Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. If you want to get your Bibles open or pull it up on your app, I'd love for you to follow along because I think there are some really key tactical, strategic components of this section of scripture um, that if I I think we really are uh, asking the Lord to apply it to our hearts and have it be a framework from which we look at life and how we make decisions, uh, this is one of the most challenging but also freeing portions of scripture should it ingrain itself in our daily rhythm. And so it's critical, and and all scripture is critical, this one being critical as well, just important to compel and push us against things in the context of our life that I really do think have confused, distorted, or challenged our understanding of God's work and really ultimately God's grace. Just to back up, remember we've said the theme of the entire book of Romans is Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what he's saying ultimately is Romans is being uh, communicated through the Holy Spirit to Paul and Paul to the church at Rome and, and through the lenses of scripture to us. There's a power at work to help us clarify the reality of the salvation we've been given. So that's what's at stake. Because I think one of the deepest lies that we believe is that um, salvation has been distorted to a sense, and Jared mentioned it last week, to just being concerned about what happens and making sure that we gain entrance into heaven. And I think the power of salvation is really the daily reality of what God gives us and grants us by his rescuing grace to be constantly and irrevocably changed daily. And in order to be changed, what has to happen? We have to have some level of awareness of where we need change. So that's really what's at stake. The altar of what we're going to be talking about this morning, what's going to be on that altar is your heart and mine. And Paul's going to say as much in these verses. He's going to say that the scope of what he's dealing with is the human heart. And when we say the human heart, what we mean is every attitude, action, behavior, thought, or way we process the world that is not in conformity to the truth of God's word or is in conformity to it. So we get both running simultaneously this morning. How we live in operation to Jesus being our master and ultimately how we live based on how we make decisions as sin is also that which desires to have mastery over us. So Romans 6, verses 15 through 23, is the scope of our sermon this morning. So as we begin, I'd like to share with you a story that I think kind of highlights the significance of what Paul is dealing with. And I'll lay my cards out on the table. I think the primary question that Paul is asking us this morning, 
as Jared preached last week, that we've been freed from sin, that we don't have to make the choices to allow sin to have dominion over us, that we've actually been freed from that uh, scope of what sin desires to do in our lives, and, and we can make different decisions. I think the question is the added specific question that also has to be answered. If that's true, why do I still struggle with sin? Paul, this morning, is addressing our ongoing battle with sin. And knowing that you sit here and I stand here as someone who struggles. We have not yet perfected living for Christ fully in every aspect of our life. There are nooks and crannies, maybe more privately than publicly, where we struggle with sin's power over us. There are still places where it masters our lives, still desires and appetites that still push us in the direction of doing what we want, when we want, because we think that what we want matters most of all. We're still governed by appetites and desires, and it shows itself up in every aspect of our life. Drive down the road in traffic on I-20. Someone cuts you off, appetite, <laughs> right there, right? There's something inside of you that feels like someone is just out to live for themselves. You made an analysis of their motives and character that might be accurate, but it's welled up inside of you, not a desire to pray for their salvation, right? It's welled up in you that there's a cop on the side of the road hoping that they get caught for what they've done, except when you're speeding and you do the same thing and you don't want to get caught. Right? That stuff lives and breathes inside of us. Think about those moments where there's arguments and challenges within the context of your home, whether with your wife or your children. You find yourself wrestling with those things and you feel initially this growing inside that you're being misunderstood or they're not obeying or doing what they should do. And inside, whether it's anger or frustration or disappointment, there's this desire that just breathes and starts to grow inside of you. And at that moment, you're not thinking about, and I'm not thinking about, how can I apply the gospel to this situation, right? How can I show and share the love of Jesus to that person that is absolutely frustrating me in the most significant way possible? You're not thinking about what forgiveness, I'm not thinking about what joy and happiness looks like in this relationship. I'm thinking about making sure that this person changes their habits, that they do what I need to do because I see clearly, and if they did what I want them to do, then everything will be okay. What happens? My heart, my experiences, my desire become that which has mastery over me. So I think I see the world clearly, when in reality I don't. What I see is my own desires clearly, and if I get what I want, then everything's okay. Sin has mastery over us. There's still a place where it compels and propels us to do the things that we want to do. Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. So on January 28, 1945, World War II was coming to a close. In the process, there were still significant POWs that were uh, kind of sectioned off in prisons across uh, Asia. And, and one, there were 500 POWs that were in a, in a camp in the Philippines. And in the process of uh, the army being aware of these things, they sent 121 army rangers to bring freedoms to these 500 captive POWs. The same POWs that had been a part of the Bataan Death March. And what the prisoners had noticed that they shared their stories is that many of the main individuals that were keeping them captive had left, 
And there were only a few individuals that were kind of spotted around just watching these prisoners. In the process of that, the 121 army rangers came in with full force. They were able to provide freedom to these 500 captive POWs. But as so many of those POWs shared their story, here's what they shared. When those army rangers came in, we were fearful and uncertain. We had spent so many months being confused and deceited, lied to, that there was numerous amounts of deceit that had taken place in their entire captivity. So they did not have any idea what to trust. They were sure that it was just another trick. Freedom seemed unlikely, if not impossible. And so because they were starved and sleep deprived and some of them blind because of a vitamin D deficiency, there was just no certainty that this could actually be true. But in the process, as the army rangers had come in and opened their cells and allowed them and drew them to freedom, there was a familiarity of the voices that they heard, those English overtones, the communication of a language that they understood allowed them to begin the process of trusting that freedom was possible. And in the process of that, they would share stories time and time again of freedom being a process. They realized how difficult it was to live in captivity and how much it had framed and distorted their picture of what life truly was. But a quote from one of the gentlemen says this, There was a soldier that had walked up to this gentleman and said, and pulled on his arm and said, what's wrong with you? Don't you want to be free? But uh, Bank, who was a prisoner, was uh, from Alabama, recognized a familiar southern accent of the questioner. Smile formed on his lips, and he was willing to thankfully begin the journey to freedom. And here's what they said. It was a long, slow, steady march, but this was a life march, a march to freedom. That is precisely what Paul is talking about in Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. Freedom has been granted, as Jared shared last week, that God has freed us from not only the penalty of sin, but its power. That doesn't have to control our understanding, but as we think about our ongoing battle with sin that's in our hearts, Paul begins to answer this question. Why do we still struggle? Why is sin still out there drawing us and tempting us and we know we've been given this gift and we can experience freedom in Christ and following Jesus is so much better than following the power of sin. Why do you and I still struggle with sin? It might seem like an easy answer. Well, we have a sinful nature. We're still growing. There's still change that God's doing in our life. Yes, that's all abundantly true, but Paul puts it in a very different category. He puts it in the category of master obedience, who is actually directing your life. If we personified sin and made it a person, we would say to ourselves, well, at times that sin itself is what has mastery over me. It's telling me what to do. It's communicating that my appetites deserve to be met. Or do I find myself under the mastery of Jesus? Those are the words that I think Paul uses here as a way to communicate very clearly about what and who has control over our thoughts, perspectives, and desires. So look with me in the first few verses of Romans chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 15. What then, he asks the question, are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know 
that you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient, and here it is, from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So Paul is communicating that that life changes, that we have been changed, and that we've been set free from sin's power and its corruption and distortion of our lives, but we're still walking out the reality of that journey of freedom. So in the process of that, he gives us this category, and here's what he says. Universally, in all humanity, every person, everywhere, we are all mastered by something. Every one of us. In some way, in the categories of our life, something has control over us, a universal truth that we step into and we can see it fully in the context of our life if we're willing to look inside, that there are things that happen, triggers that we experience in the context of our lives where we are convinced that somehow in some way this appetite, this desire, this feeling is so big and so huge that it actually determines the decisions that we make. How many have heard the term blind rage? That's it. Right? I mean, it gives us a category that anger can well up so much in the context of our lives that we are blind to the situations around us and we can't see clearly, but what end up, what's ending up making the determination and the decisions of what we do, how we think, and how we behave is anger. There's a frustration that's underneath brewing and breathing inside of us. Paul says our ongoing struggle with sin is actually asking ourselves what we're mastered by. And he's telling us that that's the balance and the rhythm. Either we're mastered by sin and selfishness and appetites that live inside of us, or we're mastered by Jesus, his calling and the way in which he's called us. And why does he put it in those categories? Because he's telling us that we in and of our hearts know that there is something that is controlling us. And it's either the benevolent, kindness, loving grace of the God of the universe who has created the universe in such a way that he communicates how it operates. He knows all of the inner workings of what is supposed to happen. And so following him as our master is the only way. The other option is we follow the mastery of our hearts. You and I are always constantly serving something. And I think often, especially in our day and age, that truth regularly gets diluted, right? We would talk about living your best life, finding your true self. There are all of those components that culture has told us that there's really no absolute universal truth that is a pattern for how all of us should and could understand the world. And yet, if we were able to understand that the scope of our own feelings is actually driving our decisions, and that our feelings and our appetites and our desires can have mastery over us, then we begin to grow in this knowledge that sin desires to take over. 
I want to use a term in the English language that I think is helpful for us. And the reason I know this term is not because I'm smart by any means, but because I watch way too many Westerns. So best movie of all time, Lonesome Dove. Great. I've had Erin watch it a few times. She's sick of it. Uh, but she made me watch, what was that movie? Uh, Gone with the Wind. Yeah, yeah. I hate that movie with a passion. Uh, but nonetheless, so we, we have different interests, just FYI. Um, but in, in, in the English language, there's a, there's a term called deputizing. And that's why it's so critical in, in the, you know, the, the Old West. They used to make deputies of civilians that would help be able to uh, carry out the authority of those who've made the deputy, that they made the deputy. But here's the definition of deputizing. It's the act of distributing authority to someone else. Here's what happens in our life. I feel like Paul is telling us that we deputize our feelings. We allow what we think, feel, desire, and want to be deputized in the sense that it has authority to make decisions for us, that it lives and breathes. It's as though we've given it a shield and we've said, yep, I somehow have clarity. I can see what I need to see. I know that I'm right and I'm accurate. And in the process of those things, the decisions I make are the decisions that are best for me. So we deputize our feelings and emotions. Why? Because we're all mastered by something. We've given authority to the way that we think and feel. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans 6 is that we recognize that there's an ongoing pattern and an ongoing struggle with sin. Why? Because we're aware that we all need change. There's a process of experiencing the freedom that we've been given. It could be said that all of the scope of Scripture in some ways is about God freeing those who are bound by slavery and then the people who've been freed from slavery desiring to go back to it. That's the gospel. That's the reality of what we face in the entire scope of the scriptures from, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. There's this sense of story after story of humanity crying out to God, being freed from the power and the penalty of sin, being granted intimacy with God, finding joy and hope and in knowing that God has set on a pattern for the world that is worthy to be trusted, that he truly is the only one worthy of our affections, that he is the one that has our best interests in mind and has pursued us and loved us in ways beyond what we can imagine. And we've experienced that in tangible ways, the song we sing. I've witnessed it. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of others. God is the God that sets captives free. Amen. Right? That's what happens. That's what God does. And yet what happens in our own human hearts when we deputize our feelings is that we find ourselves desiring to go back to captivity because it's familiar. We allow our feelings and emotions, our desires, our attitudes and actions to be that which has mastery over us. And Paul, in the most clear way possible, is to say Jesus is the only one worthy to call master. He's the only one that has the care and concern and the tenderness for your life and mine. Only one worthy to know how the world operates and is functioning because he set it up. He's the author of creation and thus also the author and what? perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Like he paid what was necessary, not just so that you and I could experience heaven, but right now you and I can experience life for eternity. John 10, 10. I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. There is something that seeks to rob us of the abundant life that Christ offers us in himself. And that thing is sin. 
It desires to have mastery over our lives. And if you're anything like me, I give my heart to it way too often. I find myself desiring the familiarity of captivity than I do the uncertainty of what God could be doing in my life. I nurture sin. I love it. I want it as a companion because at least for a moment, it makes me feel better. I can vent. I can get these things out. I can feel what I need to feel. I give all of these areas of my life and I deputize my feelings. And what does Paul say happened? When that happens, when we live that life, when we find ourselves consistently under the mastery of sin, what does Paul want us to do? He wants us to understand the downstream implications of those decisions. Here's what he says. He says in verse 20, for when you were slaves to sin, remember what it was like before God showed up. Remember what it was like as you made the decisions that you thought was best. Look at the trail of what happened in the brokenness that was left behind in the wake of our bad decisions. He said, for when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. When sin had mastery over you, there was a part of you that didn't care whether it was right or wrong. You just wanted what you wanted. I wanted what I wanted. I did what I thought was best for me. Can that not be an absolute clear understanding of the state of the world that we live in? Like there is no way that we can communicate truth because truth is subjective. You feel what you feel, you do what you want, and who am I to say that that's wrong? Well, I'm not, but God is. His word is absolutely abundantly clear that sin does what? It leads to death. And so when we communicate the gospel, just implications for our world, when we talk about truth, when we talk about the standards that God has set out, we are not saying, hey, look, we're better than you. We're saying every time, unequivocally, everywhere, in every moment, sin lives and breathes, it will always lead to death. The worst thing for you and the worst thing that I could do for you is to tell you, go ahead and live the life that you want. Because where's it going to lead? Death and destruction. If I'm motivated by the truth of the gospel, then what I communicate is Jesus is not just have one way of others and it's a better way than what you're living now. Jesus is the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone that comes to him, right? He gives us this clarity of saying when we communicate about the reality and the challenges that, face, that we face in our world and all of those ups and downs, what we're communicating is not that we're better, but that the gospel is the only hope for our generation, that ultimately living under the mastery of sin is absolutely destructive and the worst thing that can happen. Everybody in all humanity is on a collision course with Christ, one way or the other. It's either under submission as him as master or as judge, that which will deal finally and fully with sin and its implications. Verse 21 says, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed. Boy, isn't that one of the most challenging questions in Scripture? I think what it's asking is, just look back. Look back on your life, and look back if you were able to have a video played in your life, and we put it up on the screen, <laughs> of the last month. And every decision, every thought, every desire, everything that was said was played on a reel. How proud would you and I be of those moments? Not many. <laughs> Just the thought of what Paul is saying here is look back at the fruit of living under the mastery of sin. And the question is, how did it work for you? <laughs> how did it go? Not so great. 
that you look back on your life and I look back on my life and those areas of things that I know when I was mastered by sin, what did it lead to? I'm ashamed of those things. Not proud that, that I'd let sin hold sway over my life. Even as a believer, still that ongoing struggle with sin, I look back on my life and say, I don't, I don't want to go back there. And so what he's trying to do is communicate to you and to me that the familiarity of the mastery of sin that might bring for us comfort, a desire to move back into those places just because it's predictable, only led to shame and death. You don't want to go back there, and neither do I. But yet we still struggle. And that's why Paul continues on in these verses, not to minimize the war that we face with sin, but to allow us the understanding of the fact that if we put ourselves under the mastery of Christ, there is strength outside of us to fight the war against sin's mastery. Look what he says here in verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. What's that word mean? It leads to change. It leads to us beginning to understand that our identity is not previous shame of ills and sins that we've committed. It's present grace knowing that our identity is found in Christ alone. We are children of God. Our identity isn't based on past failures and fears or even current struggles. Our identity remains and always remains for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ as his kids. We are part of the family of God. You are not seen by the God of the universe based on previous and past sins. You are seen as though the Father sees Christ himself. You are his kids. He loves you as though, as, as much as he loved Christ himself. Psalm 27, you are my light, my salvation, my stronghold. Paul is communicating that we get a chance to internalize and appropriate the very things that we have in Christ, the righteousness, the perfection, the joy of who we are in Jesus has been given to us by God. Your stance, your standard, who you are, your position before the Father of the universe is not one based on performance or previous sins. It's based on Jesus. Thank God. And so why would we not want to move towards allowing Jesus to be that which is our master, helping us understand who we are in him, affecting and infecting every decision that we make, that our appetites that we deputize to give authority over us no longer has control, but we are slowly moving towards freedom because we know that only God can change us. Talk to any married couple and ask how well it's gone for them to try and change one another. It's not good. It don't work. Why? Because the author and instrument of change is Christ himself. We need his rescuing grace daily. And then maybe one of the most significant places in all of scripture that we've probably memorized, he finishes his argument about our ongoing struggle with sin. And here's what he says. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what I think is absolutely critical in what he's saying. As we live life under the mastery of sin, we get paid based on what we do. It's a wage. You earn it. <laughs> you and I do it all the time. You do these things. There are natural consequences for the scope of what happens in the context of those things. 
But there's a different part of what the gospel says. It says the wages of sin is death, but, but, but what's the gospel? Is it a wage as well? Is it something that you get paid for if you make the right decisions? If you do the right things and live in obedience, you get the outcome of the things that you've done well. So somehow in some way, God works on a base of scales. If you've done enough good things and not as many bad things, everything's all set. That's not what he says. So the wages of sin is death, but the what? You all say it. Free, free. You have been given the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not because of merit, not because of worth, not because of decisions that you have made. God has dispensed his free gift of grace on you. A wage is something you earn. A gift is something that you receive. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ in our ongoing battle with sin, need to be reminded of the essence of the gospel. You have been given the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus that he has freed you from sin's power and penalty. It's not something that you are earning. It's something that you are receiving. And so what is our prayer? God, help me be a better person? No. The prayer is, God, help me receive the free gift that you have given me and that wherever you want to change and however you want to change me, I'm in. When I see sin bubble up inside of me and I'm aware of it, I know that it's not my identity. So I repent of it and I realize that I've been given freedom in Christ Jesus, that he has given me the gift of his grace and rescued me from sin's power and sin's penalty. He has changed my life. I am no longer captive to that sin. I don't have to deputize my emotions. I can repent and ask forgiveness from those I've hurt. Why? Because I've received a free gift of life eternal of abundant life, of a relationship and an intimacy that defines my identity. I need no longer to prove myself or to find my value because I found it in Christ Jesus because he gave it to me. I don't need to continue to run this treadmill of trying to be a better person and try and figure out ways that when I sin and I go to God and I say, you know, God, I'm really sorry. I promise I won't do that again. Here's what Tim Keller says, which I think is beautiful. Jesus is the only Savior in the world who, if you gain him, will satisfy you, and if you fail him, will forgive you. Jesus, the only Savior in the world who, if you gain him, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ as the sole author and perfecter of your faith, he will satisfy you. Why? Because when we deputize our appetites, we're looking for satisfaction in everything but Jesus. And he's the only one that satisfies us. The scriptures are clear. The whole scope of scripture, like we said, is in some ways God freeing those who are enslaved to so many different things and granting them freedom from that captivity and our desire to go back to captivity. <laughs> he's the only one that will satisfy. And not just leaving it there, that even if you fail and when you and I do in our ongoing battle with sin, forgiveness for those who found faith in Jesus Christ is always, always granted to his kids. There's never a moment that is sincerely you and I come to faith in Christ and are walking with him and we're finding our growing freedom from the captivity of sin and we stumble and fall that the loving, kindness, rescuing grace of Jesus Christ isn't going to be there. And to be able to say, you were always and inevitably my kid. You're not going to lose that because you've screwed up. Thank God. I would be a mess if I had to live the Christian life as though in some way I was doing enough to allow God to 
uh, be proud of me. You are worthy because Christ is in you and he sees Christ before he sees our sin. You are forgiven. I think what he says is that we earn death, but we receive grace. We receive the reality of what God has given us and that daily we need that rescuing grace in the context of our lives. And often we can deputize our feelings. We can feel like somehow what we think and feel matters more than anything else in the world. It affects how we relate with people and it it affects how we view ourselves. The two greatest challenges I think that we face in the world and our own journey with faith is how we see ourselves and how we see others. Awesome, often, awesome, often we see people as obstacles or objects. Sometimes we see ourselves as though we'll never measure up and that our sin is our identity. And part of what the gospel is doing is cutting those ties to patterns and behaviors and allowing us to see that he's the source of our hope and strength. So if I could boil it down, let me just suggest to you, there's a quote by a a gentleman named Elton Trueblood, and he describes faith this way. Faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. Now hold on a minute. I know that seems idealistic, and I agree with you. (laughs) If I could just trust God without reservation, everything would be great. But if I'm honest, I have doubts. There are times I'm not so sure. I wonder if the God of the Bible and his sufficiency as it's been written on every page of the scriptures and given to me as a a gift to discover the character and the nature of God, I, I hear his goodness, I see his love, I've witnessed his faithfulness through the pages of Scripture. But I'm on a part in my life where I'm not sure it's going to work out. I wonder if the goodness of the God on the pages of Scripture is going to be goodness directed towards me. I wonder if the suffering that I'm going through is punishment from God based on some sin. I'm just living out the consequences of bad decisions. That's what the people around me would tell me. They would tell me that in some way you just got to earn back trust, broken things, and there's really no repair unless you perform in certain ways. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible communicates to us very clearly that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is life eternal. Life, that which we desire in our intimate relationship with God. And so as we say this idyllic idea that faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation, what we're saying is, God, that's the journey I'm on. If I'm honest, here's what I deeply think Paul is communicating. God, I want to trust that I am no longer mastered by sin and that I want you to be my master. I want to be living in obedience to you. I want to care about the things you care about and do the things that you desire me to do because I know embedded in them is life, truth, and health, that, that you really have set for me the paradigm of what life looks like in the context of this world. I want to trust without reservation, but help, help me in my unbelief because <laughs> I, I want to be there, and maybe in my best moments, I am times where I can fully just believe and surrender control and allow God to be God. But then somehow I wake up the next morning thinking that it's about what I can control. I wake up and I deputize my emotions yet again. (laughs) How I think and how I feel, I put the shield over my heart and I say to myself, you got this, Chuck. You're all set, man. You can figure these things out. If you work hard enough and you do enough things, the church will grow. If If you are sincere and faithful enough and you do the right things, then Maybe people will start to like you more. 
Maybe, just maybe, if you, if you show up and you're there and accessible often enough, people won't criticize you. Maybe you can do enough to earn the world's approval. And then the truth of scripture competes and is on a collision course with the deputizing of my emotions. And you know what the scriptures tell me as I struggle with those things of approval? You are improved of, you are approved of in Christ. Why am I not sufficient for you? The joy of knowing that I'm in a relationship with the Father of the universe and Jesus Christ has saved me in innumerable ways and granted me strength through the power of the Holy Spirit rescue me from my desire of approval because I have approval in Christ. That's how it works itself out. Faith is not belief in the absence of proof, but trust without reservation. Would you pray with me? Father, we know we need change. I know that I need change. Lord, I know that what you've declared over me is right and good and true. And yet I do know that sin seeks to distort my identity. It seeks to corrupt the very things that you have defined me as and called into question. It's the very thing that happened in the garden. Did God really say? That is the challenge of my soul. That I I wonder and I question the goodness as you present yourself in Scripture and the the truth of who you are. And even as we're going to walk through the reality that you were working out all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. that, That I want so deeply inside my heart to believe that. And yet the circumstances of my life and the challenges that I face are just louder voices. And so, Father through intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. God, continue to remind me of the freedom that you've granted me from the captivity of my sin. Help me to not deputize my emotions and allow them to have authority over me. But God, direct my heart. Humble me in such a way that ultimately I can live a life in growing and trusting you without reservation. What you say and who you are is truly enough for me. Make it so in my life, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and respond in worship.